0: Welcome to episode 320 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paredin, historian, deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, who, by his own request, I have shortened his introductory (laughs) resume, because I'm sure by now you know who he is and how long his resume actually is. How are you this fine morning, Bill? Um, You know, this is... So, for those of you that... um,
1: don't realize we record these episodes about a month before the release. So today, yesterday was the big Iowa caucus and the most of the country is in the middle of this huge freeze. What temperature did you say
0: it was there in Mississippi today, Seth? 19, 19 degrees. 19. Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm.
1: And it is a only 73 degrees <sighs> here in Florida. This is precisely why I moved to Florida, Seth. And yeah, you're right. Everybody knows what my Navy resume is, so we've decided to shorten it.
0: <laughs> you have decided to shorten it.
1: <laughs> well, I have, indeed, indeed. Yeah, people, again, I think y'all could recite it back to me by now, I think. so. I can recite go. it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, and before you know, we get started so as viewer. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, the thing is though, and it's important to know too, about, about your resume is same, same as mine is that not everybody watches all of our shows. So there's going to be people that watch this show for the very first time this episode, and they're not going to know who you are. So, but for those of you who don't know who Bill is, look him up. He's, he's a bad dude and in a good way. (laughs) And for
1: those of you who don't know who Seth is, look him up. He's a bad dude. We're going to be talking about a, subject today that uh, there was a great episode of a mini series called the pacific and seth had a little bit to do with that so um on with the show
0: yeah uh before we get started we do want to ask you to like and subscribe to our channel as it helps other people find our stuff so if you haven't please do and if you have thank you very much so as bill said on with the show with the conquest of the mariana islands and the rearview mirror by the middle of august the central pacific drive continued its frenetic pace advancing ever closer to the home islands the two-pronged american advance across the pacific macarthur in the south and nimitz's people in the center had forced the japanese on an ever-present and never-ending defensive posture Backed into a corner, the Japanese would try new tactics to force a negotiated peace they could see slipping out of sight. These new defensive tactics would be implemented wherever the Americans decided to land next, wherever that may be. For the Americans, there was no ambiguity as to where they would land next at all. The Palau Islands had been on Admiral Chester Nimitz's radar for months. The logic behind the capture of the Palaus was theoretically sound. American possession of the Palaus would eliminate any potential threat to MacArthur's line of attack on the Philippines. The Palau's would also serve as a potential base for American support of the Philippine operations, or at least that's what Nimitz said. And we'll get to that more in just a bit. As time wore on, Nimitz felt that isolating several of the islands, as he had done in the past, would serve equally as well as occupying them. However, three islands in the southernmost portion of the Palau's would indeed be invaded by American forces. Angaur, Negizibus, and Peleliu would be seized for their airfields, of which only Peleliu's was in operating condition. With well, a capture date set for September 15th, 1944, Stalemate two, specifically the capture of Peleliu, was a done deal set in stone. The troops slated for landing on Peleliu were arguably the finest infantry division on the planet, and that is both theaters, the veteran and battle-hardened 1st Marine Division. Rife with veteran leadership throughout the ranks, the old breed was ready to tackle their next task, morale high. The Marines were told by their commanding officer, Major General William Rupertus, that Peleliu, quote, will be a short operation, a hard-fought quickie that will last for four or five days at most, unquote. Rupertus would eat those words as his Marines would suffer through one of the war's bloodiest and oft-forgotten fights for little to nothing in return except suffering and misery. Bill, this is this is going to be a tough uh, conversation as we go through, mainly because of the fact that there's so much stuff that goes on here that didn't need to necessarily happen. And it's uh, it's 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 frustrating. But uh you know, it is what it is. We gotta talk yeah, about
1: We do. I'm I'm jump on a couple of points here, Seth, before we get into the details. The first one is your comment that this is the toughest uh, infantry division on the planet at this point boy you're going to get some heat for that from the european theater folks and i only point this out because i'm a pacific guy but you're a you're a real historian with great expertise in the atlantic and uh, the european and pacific theaters so it's Mm -hmm. not you're not saying that with a pacific bias i don't think is that
0: right that is 100 percent right. And uh, for, yeah, of course, you're going to hear Army guys say 82nd Airborne. And hey, don't get me wrong, 82nd 80. were some bad dudes, no doubt. 101st, yep. Yeah, I'm going to hear all that. But I would put the 1st Marine Division, and it's not not just me. I mean, John McManus, John Parshall, uh, Rich Frank, there's numerous other historians that would put the 1st Marine Division against any division on the planet american german british or japanese pound for pound and they're going to rate them higher and we're going to get into the reason why in just a little bit we'll we'll get to that section absolutely but yeah no not, doubt I will receive well, flag for that but I stand by my statement yeah,
1: no but, but it's but it's a great point of discussion and there's foundation for what you said it's not just your pacific bias the second thing i will say is you know we can call we did an episode about king where we said our this title was something like Admiral King was right about almost everything. Right. And today we get to say Admiral Nimitz was right about almost everything. And this is the one one of the things that he was wrong about. Now, in an earlier episode, I jumped all over MacArthur about Peleliu because he did make an offhand comment that he needed Peleliu to guard his flanks. Right. And I ridiculed that whole concept of guarding somebody's flanks from 800 miles away or wherever it exists. I'm going to pull up a map here. Um, yeah, here we go, there's a, the Northern Marianas and, and all these places that we had been talking about with uh, the Tur- Marianas Turkey shoot, things like that. Philippines are over here. And of course there was a planned landing of Mindanao up here, Leyte over here, and of course eventually Luzon up here. And this is about 800 miles, folks. And so, you know, the, the fact that this was needed to protect the flanks, I ridiculed that and, and blamed MacArthur for that. But but in fairness, and a lot of people push back on me for this, in fairness, this was as much Nimitz's idea as it was MacArthur's. And even as you're going to find out during our discussion today, even when others pushed back against Nimitz and said, You know, we probably can bypass this one. He dug in to and to his discredit. And um, but it's a lesson learned, right? You can't be right about everything, Seth.
0: You can't, and you know, and we'll get to that because there there was a discussion where MacArthur and him, it's legitimately thought that Peleliu was going to be uh flank protection for lack of a better term. But we'll we'll get to that, but but Macarthur's opinion changes as the war also the timetable of the war changes as well. But we'll again we're getting ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, Bill, let's talk about excuse me. Let's talk about the Palau's and uh, Japanese troops on the Palau's on Peleliu specifically. Uh, They were an important the Palau's the whole group were an important Japanese possession. They Japan had occupied the areas the area. For over 30 years, as of 1944, they'd been used as a staging point for invasions across the Pacific in 1942. They had been used very recently as naval staging points and bases for the combined fleet. Uh, military infrastructure on the islands itself was virtually non-existent before 1939. With the exception of a seaplane ramp, there was really no military presence on the islands. However, After 1939, all that changes. Uh, In 41 and 42, the Palau's have been used by Japan as staging points, as I said, for invasions of the Central and Southern Philippines. Many of the troops that ended up in New Guinea and the Solomons passed through the Palau's on the way to their ultimate fate. However, it was seen as a backwater until now. Bill, by 1943, the tenor of the war had significantly changed, though.
1: Yeah, it did. You know, there was American carrier raids Thwarting the idea to permanently house the combined fleet in the Palau's on March 30 and 31st of 1943, the fast carriers destroyed over 160 Japanese aircraft in the area. And the, the main field here in the Palau's was on this island. I'm going to go back to the map here, Seth, because this island up here, we're going to talk about as uh, you're going to have to have to help me with the pronunciation. <laughs> so, the CBS. Uh, Negazibus, yeah, Negazibus. Negazibus, right, right. And then this is Peleliu um, proper, right? And then, uh, so the, these are the two, this is the island that's in, and Palau itself is to the northeast up here. It's actually a much bigger island. And and there was w- curiosity as to which of the islands was the most strategically important since the really good airfield was on Peleliu and it was assumed that a whole lot more Japanese defenses were on the bigger island of Palau. So the question then would be, should we bypass the big island of Palau and go straight to the one that has a useful airfield to us, which is Peleliu? And that's essentially the the, the attack tactic that we um, decided to take.
0: Yeah, it, it is. And it, and much to our, folly, uh, as, as we'll say, mm-hmm. so, you know, getting, getting back to Japanese defenses as, as the Japanese bulwark across the Pacific beginning in 1943 at Basio began to crumble. And then we go to the Marshall Islands and everything else. And eventually, obviously the Marianas, which we just finished, the, the Palau's were now seen by the Japanese. Of course, this is late 43, 1944 now as defensible and and vital as one of the last bulwarks before the Americans reached the interior zone of defenses. And we're talking Philippines, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, places like that. By mid-1944, the Palau's were designated by the Japanese as an absolute defense zone which was to be their last ditch cordon to protect the Japanese home islands and and, and and further islands and beyond, including Iwo Jima and Okinawa. As such, troops were poured into the Palaus and Peleliu specifically in April, 1944. As, the po- as opposed to other defensible islands, Peleliu was given priority for defense, mainly because of its airfield, but also because of its terrain. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Bill, assigned to, this- def- go ahead, yeah, this is the map
1: I probably should have brought up, right? There's Palau there. These are the Palaus. Palau is this little island here. And then the one down here is Anganil or something like that. So these, remember, so this is the one we decided at this point we're going to skip and go straight to Palau. Go ahead, um,
0: Seth. Well, I was going to say that the Japanese, they, they, unlike other islands that we've talked about where they... At the last minute, they, oh God, we got to hold this place. And then they send you know piecemeal people in here, and it's maybe sometimes it's good troops, sometimes it's mm, not so good troops. Here on Peleliu, they send in the best that they can lay their fingers on. Um, assigned to Peleliu to defend from any American invasion that may occur, are troops from the Kwangtung Army's 14th Division. The 14th Division, Bill, was no backwater unit. This unit was one of the oldest and most revered divisions in the entire Imperial Army. Dating back to the Sino-Japanese War of 1894, the 14th Division was to the IJA, what the 1st Infantry Division was to the United States Army in terms of heritage and performance. They'd seen a lot of action in World War II though, hadn't they?
1: Yeah, this is their big red one, I guess, huh? Yeah, in regard of. to World War II, they, they, um, the World War I action, they were part of the kwantung Army, battle-hardened, filled with veterans who hailed from the Ibaragi Prefecture on the, course, on the coast north of Tokyo and the mountains of Guma Prefecture further inland. The unit had high morale and were extremely well-led. place in charge of Peleliu's 11,000-man garrison, so it's larger than just this division, it was Colonel Nakagawa Kunio, a highly regarded and well-decorated officer. Almost as soon as Nakagawa arrived on site in May, he put his men to work. You know, he had probably had a bunch of Korean laborers in addition to the Japanese soldiers. Nakagawa fully understood that his men's placement on Peleliu would be their last post. He realized they were going to die here. He was under no false impri- illusions that, that should the Americans invade, he would be rescued or supported. And so his job was to make the Americans pay for every step they took. And he learned lessons. We sometimes say that the Japanese didn't learn as quickly as the Americans did. Well, here's a a case where they did. He learned lessons from every battle that proceeded from, you know, Basio, from Saipan, Tinian, Guam. And and so he was going to, He's a firm believer in this Fukaku honeycomb tactic. He des- he decided to set his men into digging underwater uh, underground caves underwater. I'm a submariner underground caves and fortifications that would interlink. Basically, build a honeycomb of tunnels and caves throughout this island. We'll talk about the terrain here in a moment so, to make it really really hard to take out any of his troops prior to landing,
0: Seth? Yeah, you know, reports had been coming in as these defenses of these islands had been going along, including Basio, including Saipan, including Tinian and Guam, that, you know, uh, the United States possesses ultimate fire superiority every time. As soon as the fleet arrives offshore, that's it. It's over with. You have, or you, the United States has... Ultimate air superiority, ultimate fire superiority. you know, the the firepower that we can bring to bear is nothing that the Japanese can compete with. So he's hearing all these reports. And there is a tactic that's being developed or a defense tactic that's being developed in Japan for this very type of island. Uh, Nakagawa knew, as I said, that should the Americans come and obviously we do, that we would immediately possess air and sea superiority. The firepower that we could bring to bear was not lost on Nakagawa either hence the underground fortifications that you just talked about, Bill. He believed that by going beneath the surface, he could and would negate the firepower advantage that the United States possessed. He intended to use the high ground of the island of Peleliu as natural defense and make the Americans come to him. Now, Mm -hmm. we've talked about defense in depth before and that on Beishio, that was something that the Japanese commander wanted to do, but he simply couldn't do it because Beishio was so damn small. And that's something that kind of happened on, well, it didn't kind of, it did happen on Saipan, but it wasn't a planned thing. It was, it happened because that's how the battle unfolded. This is completely different though, this whole new tactic yeah. that the Japanese developed. and we alluded to this when we talked about Biak, that this is something that, you know, Japanese commanders see what happens in Biak when they pull up into the hills and they just hold these caves that other Japanese commanders are going, Ooh, that's how we can make these guys bleed. And this Mm -hmm. is something that starts to form and you're going to see this for the rest of the world. Bill, tell us about some of this stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, Seth, the first thing, time I started thinking about terrain as a professional military officer, I was in Armed Forces Staff College and they made us reread Killer Angels, right? And Good Ground. And that caused me, this is leading up to Desert Storm. And I became a National Military Command Center watch officer during Desert Storm. And I, reading, rereading Killer Angels, really, um, Civil War, obviously, <laughs> really caused me to de- dive deep into what good terrain is and good ground with some army infantry friends of mine. And so this topic fascinated me. And, of course, registering your weapons, registering your artillery to make sure that every phase line as the enemy advances, you've got registered weaponry that's going to hit them every phase line. So even if they do burst through one phase line, then you simply have another group of registered targets that you're going to use to to, act, to attrit them phase after phase after phase. And that's what's happening here as the American forces crept ever closer to the inner Japanese defenses and the island and island after island fell to their advance. Imperial headquarters in Tokyo took notice of past failures as I said, they learned. Japanese commanders had tried to stop American invas- invasions up to this point at the water's edge. So that's not defense in depth. That's one defense phase line, right? And with the exception of Basio, which had nearly succeeded, they nearly succeeded at stopping them at the water's edge, edge every other try- time they tried it, it failed. Bonsai attacks, similarly, like the massive one on Saipan, had also failed. So while tried and true tactic against the Chinese infantry, strangely enough, against a Chinese infantry that way outnumbered the Japanese, bonsai tactics worked. It didn't work. The method of throwing men against overwhelming American combined arms was the difference. Not infantry against infantry, but infantry against combined arms so these bonsai attacks against overwhelming American firepower was now seen as a waste of manpower
0: and useless, Seth. So they had to develop things again, yet again. Yep. And there was a general, a Japanese Lieutenant General Inui Sadai. He's the guy that devises, or at least he's given the credit for devising the tactic that would serve the Japanese for the remainder of the war against the United States. Instead of trying to stop the Americans at the water's edge, like Bill just talked about, the Japanese would now pull inside of their islands to form a defense in depth. In theory, this defense in depth, when employed on islands such as Peleliu, would utilize the Coral Island's natural terrain to exact a bloody toll on the Americans. The overwhelming firepower advantage the Americans had at every turn was was not lost on the Japanese. Bleeding the invaders white was the only option when it came to defending the remaining islands of Japan's defensive ring. It was hoped by Imperial headquarters bill that exacting a bloody toll on the Americans would force the American populace and the military to grow tired of the bloodshed and sue for negotiated peace before the enemy ever got close to the, or closer to the home islands. But that is, you know, it's good.
1: Now this is becoming attrition warfare. Now (laughs) it Japanese say, we're not going to win, but these Americans, they're weak mentally, morally. So all we need to do is bleed them enough until so many people are killed. So many Americans are killed that the American people back home Call for an end for the war, and then we get our negotiated peace. That was a strategy at this point. So, the tactic of defending the interior was the perfect tacti- tactic for Peleliu. And again, I'm going to bring up the map again. So we've got this six mile long island by two miles wide, and of course, the airfield is down here, and it's got some high ridges that run along. So it's it's not. Flat. There's good places for the well prepared Japanese defenses to dig in. And as you said, honeycomb caves, the landing beaches down here would be, of course, heavily defended. They weren't going to give up the beach, but they're fairly flat. But once past those beaches, the ground rose sharply into an opposing chain of craggy hills. There's a steep drop off with ravines, all collectively called the um or brogel, and you're going to make do a better job of pronouncing that than i have said.
0: yeah the um or brogel is 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 a beast and you're going to hear that over and over and over again as we talk about pelaloo here over the next couple of episodes uh it rises to some 556 feet at its highest point and is solid coral covered by a thin layer of topsoil and i mean thin um with jungle-like foliage popping out of it, the Uma Brogel appeared as any high ridgeline from wood from aerial recon. In other words, when we flew our reconnaissance over Peleliu, it, it didn't look any different than any other, you know, terrain feature. It didn't look like this foreboding monstrosity that it actually was because of the fact that there was vegetation on top of it. Uh, for the Americans, topographical recon of the Umer Brochel was absolutely impossible and would later exact a fearsome toll on the men destined to try and clear it out. Nakagawa used the terrain to his advantage in his preparation for any landing that may come. The trees that dotted the mountain allowed Nakagawa to conceal the honeycomb of cave entrances he had constructed on the, or he had constructed on the island. Firing embrasures and pillboxes dug into the coral were hidden from view from both above and directly in front. The subterranean complex of caves on Peleliu was absolutely impressive, to say the least. Just before the American invasion, over 85% of the Japanese defenders of on Peleliu were below ground level or in a labyrinth of caves interconnected and mutually supporting. 85% of the trigger pullers on Peleliu were inside of caves or underground in some way, shape, or form. Incredible. And
1: some of these caves were fitted with steel doors flush to the slopes that made them impervious to all but direct fire. But to be give accurate direct fire, you have to know where they are. The caves were elaborately fitted. Most of them had electricity, wooden stairs, telephone lines, storerooms, ventilation shafts, mess facilities, hospitals, command posts and bunks for the occupants. You know, so these are basically, you know, complete building, kind of like Gaza right now. There were no, there was no real need to emerge from their cave system to kill the invaders. It could all be done from underground, negating any American firepower advantage. The soil, what little was there, was so thin that Americans would not be able to dig in. It would be coral, hard, coral, ivory-colored bedrock. The foundation of the entire island was at its deepest, only a foot below the surface. Nakagawa intended to lure the invaders from the beach to the island's interior, the kill zone in those mountains and make them dig. And, and he and his men out of every emplacement they had on the island. And this is going
0: to be terror on earth. Seth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, people who are listening to this and know anything at all about Iwo Jima are like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah this is where it all started. This is where it, in, in as a planned defensive tactic, this is where it all started. And the results that occur here directly influence Iwo Jima, Okinawa, mm-hmm. and all and the places like that. You know, it's 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 just it's terrible. However, we need to start talking about the, as I put it in the notes, roots of the operation and dissension in the ranks, Bill, because there is Dissension yeah. in the ranks over Peleliu as the U.S. offensive across the Pacific continued and Japanese strong points were captured ahead of schedule, such as the marshals, the timetable for the war in the Pacific accelerated very quickly. The JCS ordered issued orders as of March 12th, 1944, that said that the path to the Philippines was to move faster. MacArthur would capture Morotai and Mindanao concurrently with Nimitz's drive through the Marianas. That was the plan. Keep in mind. That didn't happen. (laughs) Well, not at that rate. Yeah, for sure. Following the capture of the Marianas, Nimitz would continue his push through the Carolines and Palau's. Now, this is all theoretical. This is what the JCS is saying in March of 1944. As it stood in March, Max forces would invade Mindanao in November and Leyte in December 1944. As the fighting in the Marianas, specifically Saipan, dragged on, the plans for the Palau's began to shift. The original operation, ominously named Stalemate, had called for the seizure of the entire Caroline group, of which the Palau's were a part. Babelthwap, the second largest island in the area, was a target for the operation. Allied intelligence told planners that Babelthwap was infested with Japanese, had incredibly difficult terrain, and was not suitable for an American airfield. The Japanese had a rudimentary airfield on the island that the planners figured They could and would be eliminated by Mitchell's carriers in a series of strikes. So the plan and hell, we could do and probably should, frankly, do an episode all about this planned procedure as things are going along towards the Philippines, because that's a whole nother discussion that we have to have. And we will when we get to the Philippine operation. But all this factors Mm -hmm. into that bill in mid June, things start to take a little bit of a different shape, though, don't they?
1: Yeah, you know, we've said this a thousand times. Um, That's a bit of an exaggeration, but no plan survives contact with the enemy, right? In mid-June, the JCS asked whether or not bypassing the Carolines altogether was feasible. Such a course of action would allow an earlier move on Formosa, which King was still pushing for, frankly, so it's still on the table at this time, or the Philippines. The general consensus, however, was that the Carolines were too important to bypass altogether. Although the scope of the operation could and would be turned down a bit. Now, so it's a general consensus. So it wasn't just Nimitz, but you know Nimitz was uh, strategic in in the argument for doing this. In light of the intel on Bethel Thwapi and Yap, also infested with Japanese, by the way, and we didn't. Spoiler alert, we never never really take you out. Um, these two islands originally targeted for stalemate would be bypassed. However, stalemate, what a horrible name. Never I never name Operation Stalemate. I swear. However, as previously mentioned, Nemitz insists on Peleliu, Aguar, and Neget Neg negus. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you could tell um, what my strengths and weaknesses are, folks. The new plan was issued in July under the name Steelmate 2 with an invasion date set for September 15, 1944. Happily, I can
0: pronounce September, so let's hand it back over to you. (laughs) So in August (laughs) 1944, Raymond Spruance and his staff were relieved and sent back to the States for a well-needed rest. As Bill always says, they were not relieved for caused. Well, I guess they were. Yeah. They were relieved because they needed a friggin' break. Um, <laughs> his replacement, R- Spruance's replacement, was one William F. Halsey, known to be aggressive, maybe over-aggressive. Halsey had been in the South Pacific since 1942 and had not held a sea command since May of 1942. Two years. He had done— yeah, it's a long damn time. Two years. So this is the first time the third fleet as such has stood up, right, Seth? Correct. Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. And 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 to be clear, uh, you know, people are going to go, Halsey saw more action. Yeah, he did. But he did not hold a C command, which is the key word here, or key phrase here, C command, since May of 1942. He had mm-hmm. done extremely well. In the South Pacific Theater orchestrating the defense of Guadalcanal at the campaign's darkest moment and then reeling off impressive victory after impressive victory throughout the rest of the Solomon's campaign. He had, as I put in the notes, been handed the keys to the Ferrari. He now held Mm -hmm. the job as the boss of the world's most powerful naval force. So just to be clear for for people who don't know, obviously, Ray Spruance is in command of Task Force 58. Halsey takes command of Task Force Thirty-eight. It's the exact same force. It's just a right. different nomenclature. Fifth fleet Fifth under Halsey and spruce. Exactly, exactly. So, but it's the and, same uh, force.
1: I love, I love the metaphor that he's handed keys to the Ferrari. The problem is, turns out Halsey is more of a pickup truck guy
0: than a Ferrari guy. Hey, I'm and a that's pickup truck guy. Me, <laughs> <myself over time. laughs> so, so Halsey. Halsey and his newly named Task Force 38. Again, same ships. Yes, some rotate in and out, but by and large, it's the same core. And Mark Mitchell still is in command of the carriers. Set sail from any we talk on August the 28th, 1944. The crews of Task Force 38 would take the almighty force to the doorstep of the Philippines while simultaneously providing support for Steelmate 2. Over the period of a week, Task Force 38 hit targets on Yap, Mindanao and Palau specifically Peleliu and encountered paltry resistance. Halsey's pilots reported having issues finding targets worthy of their attention and specifically Mindanao on and specifically Mindanao which appeared deserted. Its airfields appeared deserted, facilities primitive and very few Japanese aircraft had risen to meet the Americans in the air. Realizing that further strikes on Mindanao were pointless and you're going to say why the hell are we talking about Mindanao and Peleliu? Just Stay with me here. Stay with me. Halsey Mm -hmm. called off those strikes and focused on Cebu and the area near Leyte, where his aviators absolutely ravaged the territory over a period of two days. Radioing Nimitz on September the 14th, Halsey reported, quote, Enemy's non-aggressive attitude, unbelievable and fantastic. No airborne opposition and only meager AA encountered. No shipping left to sink. This area is wide open, unquote. There's a lot of intelligence information gathered in between the the time he sends that message in Peleliu and even before Bill. And it's gathered Mm -hmm. from the Filipinos on Leyte Island. And this has a direct result on what we're going to talk about over these next couple episodes. Tell us about this intel issue here.
1: Yeah, well, they they amplify the opinion that Leyte was wide open for the invasion. So but Halsey's probably thinking, hey, the Japanese have gone home. Realizing that the goal at this point was the Philippines, he took this information to Nimitz via radio. And here's strategically, remember, Halsey has these really, really bright moments. And then tactically, sometimes not so much. But here's a great strategic bright moment. He takes this information Nimitz via radio and strongly suggests that Nimitz cancel Pelelu's Stalemate two. In favor of pouring those resources into an operation on Leyte. Now remember, Philippines, MacArthur. That requires a lot of coordination, um, and so I don't know. I don't know if this has anything to do with the stick with Plan A, but this would accelerate the timetable, which of course does happen. Philippines are brought up. But that's another episode for another day. Halsey had long been the lone voice against taking the Palau's island hopping campaign. The decision is which islands you hop and which ones do you hop to. He called this operation, the Palau's, unnecessary and a potential waste of lives. He happened to be right. Halsey had questioned the need for Peleliu, saying that its airfield was of little future value and the island, like so many others, could be cut off and would not pose any threat uh, of any kind. And again, if I go back to the Pacific map here, Seth, we're talking about this is, is the Palau's right here. Yeah. Here's Leyte up here. And at this point, we have so many aircraft carriers, we can get all the air power we need in yes. close for for these kinds of operations, air support operations, there is nothing that we need to fly from all the way out here to support the Philippines. So whether or not you want to um and what what kind of threat land-based aircraft might be able to provide some kind of threat. But but did they seriously threaten us when we were up here in the Mary Islands during the Marianas Turkey shoot? No. So Halsey was absolutely right on this point, Twenty Twenty hindsight,
0: of course, Yeah, but, but Nimitz wasn't having it, Seth. No, he. Paul, Halsey said that the Palau operation, quote, did not op- offer opportunity for destruction of enemy forces commensurate with delay and effort involved in stalemate, too. In other words, he's saying the Japanese that are there, we can cut them off and let them wither on the vine. There is no need to send these guys over here to go kill these people they're not going to harm us let's just let them wither out here and we'll be just fine he formally sends his dispute up the chain twice at least twice and i'm fairly certain that it it was significantly more but were know for sure that it was definitely twice. His comments were read and dismissed by Chester Nimitz. Nimitz endorsed a faster timetable for Lady, but stubbornly held fast to landing on Peleliu using the flimsy excuse, quote, the forces have already sailed, unquote. No kidding. That's exactly what he said. <clears throat> Nimitz felt that Peleliu held the most important Japanese airfield in the region. And despite the fact that all of its facilities had been destroyed multiple times over by the fast carriers, a duly noted fact he insisted on its invasion. Bill, until his dying day, Nimitz insisted Peleliu was necessary, and to be clear, it was not, and never right. conceded the fact that the island could have been bypassed. With the accelerated, and this is the important part here, with the accelerated timetable now approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Leyte will be landed in on in October. Peleliu was just another island that could have been, should have been bypassed. It was undoubtedly, Nimitz's biggest failure of the war. No, no, no question here.
1: Yeah. And it's sad because, you know, obviously I, you, we're both such Nimitz supporters. think, you know, widely referred to as the best admiral the United States has ever uh, produced, which I absolutely agree with. But we're all humans. And, um, you know, at this point, I think he was riding high after the Marianas Turkey shoot. And, you know, it was almost we can do no wrong, you know, despite the bloodletting it in the Marianas on ashore, shore. We were, we had this huge momentum and, you know, I I think he knew that it would be difficult. I didn't think this would be, he thought it would be a cakewalk, but his strategic vision on this day was clouded and Halsey to his credit had better strategic vision on this day than he did, and I don't think I'll ever say that
0: about any battle ever <laughs> except for this one. You know, and we 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 alluded to it at the beginning about MacArthur, and we need to address it here now. So in March, when when the JCS was talking about you know Mindanao first, and then um, uh, Lady after that, you know Mindanao in November, and Lady in in in, in December. This is all before the Marianas. This is all before Forager, all several months before months, three months before Forager. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that still has to happen. At that time, before we take the Marianas, Peleliu or Palau did look like it could potentially be a thorn in the side of the Philippine invasion because we had not taken the Marianas yet. And so you got to remember, there's a big buffer between the Philippines, the Palaus, and the Marianas, there's a big area of Japanese controlled territory there. And MacArthur had every right to say, eh, we probably need to take something over here just to so we don't, you know, wind up in the middle and get surrounded and cut off. And he was right, frankly. However, after Origer unfolds and everything goes well, as we know, MacArthur himself told Halsey that he agreed with him that Peleliu was not... Necessary, or that the Palau's. I keep saying bellow aluminum. Obviously, that's the main target, but the Palau's were not necessary. Even MacArthur sided with Bill Halsey and said, "Yeah, Admiral Nimitz, we this is not necessary. We don't need to take this place any longer because we're going to hit Leyte in October. You guys already got the Marianas. We're good to go. We don't need to cut this off." So we always bash MacArthur, but you got to give credit where credit's due. He's also sitting here saying. Mm, We don't need this. Just let it, just let it wither on the vine, and keep on trucking. And Nimitz and I looked in every book I have about Nimitz. No one can give a concrete, firm explanation as to why Nimitz just dug in his heels and said, "Nope, we're taking Peleliu. And it, it, it's Mm -hmm. just, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I wish I, I wish I did. He had to think that it was going to be
1: easier than ended up being. I mean, that's my only consideration here, trying to give him credit. Yeah. And and you're right about MacArthur. It's one of those deals where uh, a former American political uh, leader said, well, I disagreed with you before I agreed with you. And this, this is kind of some of that, right? He yeah. said, he, he, you know, we needed to do this, and then he changed his mind about needing to do this. And, and give him credit. He evolved, right? And that's yeah. a good thing to do. You, yeah. you need to evolve. So, go go ahead, ahead, Bill. No, go ahead. I was going to say, the unit chosen to land on Peleliu was the veteran 1st Marine Division that we regaled so broadly just a moment ago. Populated with a cadre of combat veterans, the division was easily the most combat experienced unit in the Pacific at the time. More than two-thirds of the division were veterans. Roughly one-third had seen action at both Guadalcanal and Cape Gloucester. The other one-third had seen action at Gloucester, and just about one-third remaining were boots fresh from the States. But that, those are good odds. I mean, those are good odds to have two-thirds combat veterans in a unit like this. So recognizing then and now, recognize then and now as the finest American infantry division available in theater, in any theater at the time, The old breed, as they were called, were supremely led at the regimental battalion and company level. The 5th Marines were led by Colonel Bucky Harris. The 7th Marines by Colonel Herman Hannigan. All highly experienced combat veterans. But the 1st Marines, Seth,
0: who led those guys? A little guy, and I do mean little because he was a little bitty dude named Louis <laughs> Chesty Puller. Oh, he's uh, the l- first little vertically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> little horizontally. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Barrel <laughs> chest. Yeah. The, the first Marines, Puller's first Marines would be assigned without a doubt the toughest task of the first few days of the operation. Um, that, of course, being taking the Umar Brogel. As I said, they were led by Chesty Puller, the four-time, and he, I know he's, he's five-time yeah. but now he's a four-time Navy Cross recipient. He had been promoted since commanding 1-7 Guadalcanal and now held the reins of the First Marines. In the weeks leading up to Peleliu, and we're going to talk about Puller a lot and and— Next week, when we tackle Peleliu again with our returning guest from season one, uh, looking forward to that conversation, we're going to be talking a lot about Chesty Puller. But this needs to be prefaced here. In the weeks leading up to Peleliu, Puller had displayed an odd sense of foreboding, not his normal blood and guts mentality. He had been wounded seriously, as we know, on Guadalcanal in November, and the wound had been causing him grievous pain even now. When asked before landing by a reporter if he thought the landing would be easy, he snapped, quote, sure, asshole, come ashore at noon and we'll have lunch together. I'll save you a seat, unquote. Now, Chesty Puller was never one to mince words, but he also wasn't really a rude guy. But that's just that's just one conversation and, and you can't, you know, dig too much into one conversation. However, there's a lot of things that happen over the next several days that make you wonder if something else was going on with Louis Pollard. Mm. Now, while the regiments were all supreme, supremely led, the division commander had a question mark over his head. Major General William Rupertus had taken command of the 1st Marine Division following Vandergrift's promotion and held the position through Cape Gloucester and now at Peleliu. Rupertus had raised eyebrows when he claimed that Peleliu would be a tough but fast operation. He was full of bravado but he was not well-liked among his subordinates. With over 30 years of experience, he was seasoned and had been groomed by Vandergriff to take command of the 1st Marine Division. However, the transition was not a welcome one once it happened. He was known to be moody, fickle, and was often belligerent. And Bill, we just finished Forager, where we talked a lot about Holland Smith and his relationship with the Army. William Rupertus has a similar... Relationship with the United States Army, Dunning.
1: Yeah, he does. I mean, it's it's a um, second Holland Smith, the second Howling (laughs) Howling Man, Rupertus. I don't know. Um, You know, and and remember, Holland Smith isn't here for this battle, right? Right. And so, you know, Rupertus doesn't think much of the army. He's got uh, eighty-first Division, who's going to be assigned as reserve. For Peleliu, you know, this is a battle where you ought to have the reserve ready because there's no doubt they're going to be needed at some point in time. But he did think that the 81st Division was less capable than the Marines and not up to the fight. So where he formulated his, he formulated his opinion, you know, is beyond me because, you know, these, it's his Marines were going to be fully engaged in essentially the first wave. And you need, you know, this flexibility to adjust the battle plan in situ. Rupertus's opinion of the army and found it as it was forced his judgment on the fact that Peleliu would be a marine operation only. He thought, "I'll get it done with my marines." His bold, brash, and unqualified statement that Peleliu would be a quickie <laughs> would force his decision make, making in terms how he pushed his men when. The going began to get very tough, and it would get very tough. He was also a very poor judge of terrain. And even worse at judging the situation as a whole, Rupertus's ignorance of the situation as it developed and his prejudicial opinion of the army would cost his men in terms of hundreds of lives. It's one of those pride issues I know better than you do you know, how this battle is going to unfold. And, and I'm going to stick to my opinion of how the battle plan should go. Seth.
0: yeah. And, you know, and on one hand, you can understand why he feels like this, because as we said repeatedly throughout this episode, he is in command of the finest infantry division that there is. So he's like, we don't need any help. We got this. And you can kind of understand why he feels like that. However, it has been proven, literally, on every freaking invasion that we do, that things, as you always say, plans do not survive contact with the enemy, that generally, we will need support from other units outside. And by we, I'm talking about the United States Marine Corps. As Rupertus is saying, we are gonna probably need support from the outside. It was proven on Saipan. It was pro- it's been proven all over the place. True, the 81st Infantry Division is green. They have not seen any combat yet. And the 1st Marine Division is filled with combat veterans for sure. But when you have little intelligence on the island in in terms of defensive capabilities, terrain, you want to have that divisional reserve held close. And if all you have is United States Army troops, and there's nothing wrong with these guys, by the way, you you think that he would have had a little, not necessarily even a better opinion, but just a better understanding of the the nature of the fight that he's more than likely going to need these guys, if for nothing else, but to relieve tired units as they get, you know, start to wear down. But he mm-hmm. he's got these Holland Smith blinders on there, and he he just can't he can't see the forest for the trees, even as the yep. battle starts to divulge into a mess. Go ahead, Bill.
1: No, I was just going to say that you know this is. Um... You know, you would, you would have thought that he would learn from Saipan. Holland Smith's blindness really caused that to go badly because here we go again, right? You've got the um, regiments here. This the fifth regiment landing in the middle of this white beach. You've got the seventh regiment landing to the south and they're going to try to push, you know, there's, there's Japanese dug in here and you got enfilading fire. From both sides, something we're going to call the point up here as well as from this little island down here. As the Marines are landing, the the LVTs are take being taken under fire from both of these axes, right? And then you've got Chesty Puller's first Marine divisions up to the north here. This looks like it's huge. This is not a huge stretch And look down here. This is two miles. You see that scale, two miles. That's it. You've got these three regiments basically making up the division um, going in like that. So how's
0: this evolve, Seth? Yeah, it, it spirals out of control pretty damn fast. Yeah, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, as you said, Bill, to, to give the exact specifics of this uh, elements of three regiments would land simultaneously and a line abreast across the wide beach that you just showed there on the map. Coming ashore on white beaches one and two would be the first Marines. Uh, two battalions of the first Marines would land with the third held in reserve. Puller's initial assignment was to immediately push inland, turn left and assault the foot of the Umarbrogel mountain, as we're gonna see. In addition to the first Marines, the fifth Marines would land on orange, orange one, excuse me, orange one and two, link up with the first Marines on their left and strike straight forward to the Eastern shore. An additional battalion would land a few hours later, advance between the 1st and 5th, and attack across the lower end of the airstrip. Following the airstrip's capture, all units would form a continuous line and move north. The 7th Marines, as you said, Bill, would land last on Orange Beach 3. They would wheel right and hit the Japanese at the southern end of the island and eliminate all resistance there. Without a doubt, Polar's 1st Marines had the toughest assignment, and that is not looking at it through hindsight, admittedly was completely aware that the Umar Brogel would be a tough nut. How tough? He did not know, but he was actually uneasy about the assignment. And if you know anything about Chesty Puller, that is probably the first time and the only time that you will ever hear anybody say that about Chesty Puller to top it off. The landing beaches were not well chosen either. Now, that being said, they were really the only place you can land on Peleliu. Uh, Polar's Marines would land between two land features, the coral bluff on his left and a promontory on his right. Both natural positions offered the Japanese a chance to pour the infillating fire that you just talked about, Bill, into Polar's Marines as they landed. Um, the pre-landing bombardment, and we talk about this every time. Well, we're not going to get deep into the details, but well, let's just talk about it because you got to. Uh, they, Peleliu was absolutely pounded by Admiral Jesse Oldendorf's bombardment units for three straight days, pounding the island from close range as bombardment ships obliterated most above-ground targets all across the island. And by obliterated most above-ground targets, I mean literally most above-ground targets. I mean, if you look at pictures of the battle, there's not much left standing, Bill.
1: You know, no, the barracks, the hangars, utility buildings, administrative buildings, and just about everything else was wiped out by the naval shelling. However, as we know, the Japanese could have cared less. They were underground and inside the island, not on top of it. A fact that Oldendorf or no other American had any clue about. Oldendorf relayed to Apertus that he had run out of targets, which was true and that the naval shelling had knocked everything down across the island which was true rupertus met the claim without doubt with doubt but i'm sorry he met the claim with doubt. but there wasn't much he could do about it and to be honest oldendorf had destroyed pretty much everything above ground he just had no clue that the japanese had become moles nakagawa's men were nearly untouched by the shelling as a matter of fact morale Amongst the Japanese was extremely high at this point. One Japanese diarist wrote, the enemy has planned to land. Let them come if they're coming. Who is afraid of the Americans or the British? We will
0: defend Peleliu. Seth. That's an understatement. Uh, The LVTs headed to shore formed into their initial waves and moved towards the beaches. Their line of departure was some 4,000 yards offshore. Uh, it gave the ships more time to pour more fire into the beach, but it gave the Japanese more time to prepare their defenses as well. While the lion's share of Japanese were within the Umar Barogel, the beaches and their defense would certainly be hot. Now, we had just made this whole long statement saying the Japanese are not going to defend the beaches and they're not going to try and destroy the enemy at the water's edge. Well. They are going to try and defend the beaches, and that's just about everywhere with the exception of Okinawa. They are going to try and defend the beaches. Are they going to try and stop the invasion there? No, they're going to do that inland as we shall see. As the LVTs first neared the shore, Japanese announced to all living souls that they were more than ready to fight. At first, mortar fire began to drop in the lagoon. It was inaccurate, but it increased in tempo. The mortars began to, as it increased in tempo, the mortars began to get their range. As the LVTs got closer, Japanese anti-boat guns that had pre-registered the ranges opened fire. The artillery and mortar fire soon whipped the water literally into a froth as it increased in intensity and accuracy. At 0830 on the nose, Bill, the first LVTs hit the beach. Japanese fire on the beach was intense, to say the least.
1: Yeah. You know, it, this is we didn't discuss this, Seth, before we decided what to put in the episode. But there was this there was this auto executive who was analyzing battles like this one during World War II. And his his name was Robert McNamara. Our uh, viewers and listeners probably know who he is. Right. He is. I uh, was actually his escort during the Korean War Memorial dedication in the mid-1990s. But McNamara's claim to fame during World War II was he would analyze battles like this one and put up actually numerical analysis that said the right way to defend a beach like this, and I'm going to pretend that we're on the defense side, is you engage the enemy until you've attrited X percent before they get to this phase line. Then you shift your defense because you're also gonna be, your your people are gonna be attrited, right? And before you lose all of them, you intentionally pull back to the next defensive line. This is defense in depth. And in that line of defense in depth, you've got to attrit them. Let's say the first phase line, 30%, the first, second phase line, you attrit them 50%. And he actually went through numerical analysis calculations As to how the enemy should be reduced at each one of these phase lines. And this became an actual discipline that we now call my Military Operational Research Society folks are probably cheering at this point. It's called operations research or operations analysis. And and it's numerical. It's it's calculation-based. And that whole science military science emerged from analyzing battles like this one as the japanese as attrited us as during the landing phase and then attrited us more as we began to penetrate and it's an incredibly important and interesting for a geek like me subject and it was birthed in battles like this one yeah so the so the artillery and and the anti-boat guns are taking us out as we're landing, and of course, Polar's first Marines got the worst of it. Japanese machine gun positions had interlocking fields of fire that almost immediately bogged down the first Marines down on the beach. There was so much fire that Polar's men could only advance about 100 yards inland. I'm gonna go back to that map real quick, Seth, and show barely any penetration here. And of course, this line here, is basically the end of day one. <laughs> this dotted line. We're not there yet. We got more to talk about before day day one is over. But you could see in Polar's area, they're they're barely they're basically still on the beach. Yeah. Um and so hand it back over to you. You can talk yeah. about how this
0: evolves. No, I mean that's hundred percent right. They basically still are on the beach. Uh the fire was so intense that Chesty Polar himself remarked that it was the worst he had ever seen, and this is after the war, mind you, that he had ever seen or experienced. Nevertheless, the Marines did begin to push inland and began to gain some ground. By the fourth wave, Sherman tanks had landed and were taking heavy fire. Of the 18 tanks that landed at White Beach, only one made it ashore untouched, and by day's end, only five of the 18 were still operable. Puller later said, quote, I looked down the beach and saw a mess. Every damned Amtrak in our wave had been destroyed in the water by the enemy or shot to pieces the moment it landed, unquote. Puller, unflappable as always at this point, took a seat on the beach, <laughs> just took a seat right there in the sand, crossed his legs and pulled out his pipe, a scant 25 yards from the Japanese as Marines ran by him. All he would say was, quote, give them hell, Marine." I mean, (laughs) Chesney Poehler is, was a just, you could not make a guy up like this. But I mean, he's the real deal. He is the real deal. But unfortunately here at Peleliu, he he starts to, he starts to break. Yeah, but
1: I, I can't help but wondering, Seth, if this is part of the, if this is like the first signal sign that he's beginning to lose it, sitting down on the beach 25 yards from the enemy and lighting up your pipe. There's something that just doesn't make sense about that. And it's just, yeah. you know, and we're going to talk next week about, you know, where things really start to unravel. But this, again, it's not normal, Seth. Well, no, no. And Chesty
0: Puller, admittedly, is not a normal guy. But, but not a normal guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, granted. But, right. but, even, but, even for com- but even for combat commanders, I agree with you 100 percent that. Something right here, and I'm not saying we're not saying that mm-hmm. Chesty Puller's crazy or losing his mind or anything like that. He's not even close. Not a coward. No. no, no, God, no. But but something is amiss here. Something is amiss. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the first Marines were not the only ones being pounded at Orange Beach. The seventh Marines were being chewed alive. The 550-yard, 550 550-yard 550 narrow beach acted like a funnel, forcing Colonel Hanneken to land a single battalion. Mortar fire on Orange Beach was particularly heavy, making the Marines freeze on the beach where they became easy targets for artillery. Pushing forward, Hanneken's men found cover in the form of a six-feet-deep anti-tank ditch ditch. The Marines piled in the ditch, which would have been a slaughterhouse had the Japanese known they were there, but they didn't, and renewed their push inland. In the center of the assault, the 5th Marines were having somewhat of an easier time. With their flanks secure due to the first being over here and the 7th being over here, uh, they were not receiving the inflating fire that their brothers were. That being said, their path forward was blocked by concrete bunkers that were expertly camouflaged the veteran unit pushed its way inland blasting the japanese out of every single position man by man grenades flamethrowers and individual marines with knives and bayonets eliminated their targets on their way inland by afternoon bill the fifth marines had pushed inland far enough to be able to take defensive positions on the western and southern sides of the airfield however the japanese were not about to give the airfield up without a fight were they
1: no and I, I think didn't wasn't there a a bit of the um Peleliu episode in the Pacific, where they kind of highlight this airfield fight. Oh yeah, as I recall. Oh yeah, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So this is an incredible, though. Seventeen fifteen, Japanese tanks and infantry emerged from their concealed positions across the airfield and launch a brave yet futile counterattack against the Marines. And I do remember seeing. This bit in the Pacific, roughly 15 Japanese tanks emerged from their positions with infantry riding on top of the tanks. Makes no sense to me, but there you go. And surged across the airfield, which happened to be one of the only flat pieces of the ground on the entire island. And I also remember that there was no water. The Marines were like out of water in this in this bit. They were dying of thirst trying to counter this. The armor attack. The attack was coordinated as Japanese artillery fire landed amongst the Marine positions. So this was combined arms, hoping to either pin down or kill the occupants so that the tanks could advance unimpeded. And unimpeded. What the Japanese did not count on, however, was the fact that the 5th Marines were in defensive positions ready to counter this kind of attack, Seth
0: yeah yeah they certainly were uh marine positions were tied in tight uh, with machine gun positions and bazooka teams in every other hole near the front line Uh, as the tanks race across the airfield they're met by furious machine uh, marine uh, fire uh, including naval call fire support Uh, some japanese tanks made it all the way across and surged into marine lines where they were quickly knocked out by bazooka teams or 37 millimeter tank guns the accompanying japanese infantry now bereft of tank support and in the open space of the airfield were cut down by Marine machine guns and mortar fire. Those few that survived ran back towards their own positions. And you're 100% right. This is portrayed in the miniseries, The Pacific. And I think they did, I remember it's been a while. I think they did three episodes on Peleliu. And, of course, this is the first because it focuses on the 5th Marines and the 1st Marines. But, you know, again, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Um and everybody's going to sit here and watch, say, why aren't you talking about Gene Sledge? Just hold your horses. We'll get there. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll, we'll talk about k 35 and We'll get there. Yeah, I have no fear. But, you know, and and to be clear, um, I guess we probably should have said this at the beginning of this episode. We are doing, again, a trilogy on Peleliu. We feel that it's that important and that it's important to us. It might not have been important to the Pacific War uh, grand strategy, but it's important to us. So we're going to pour our efforts into this. And this is just episode one of three on Peleliu. So just hold your horses. We'll get to those stories too. But there is a story that we have to talk about, Bill, on day one, D-Day, and really Mm -hmm. in the D plus two and even three, really, uh, on Peleliu. And it involves the First Marines at a little place called The Point, uh, White Beach, which is a 656-yard concave strip of land, was dominated by a pitted spit of land that jutted out from the island that was well fortified. Quote, The point, rising 30 feet above the water's edge, was of solid, jagged coral, a rocky mass of sharp pinnacles, deep crevasses, and tremendous boulders. Pillboxes reinforced with steel and concrete, had been dug or blasted in the base of the perpendicular drop to the beach. Others with coral and concrete piled six feet on top were constructed above and spider holes were blasted around them for protecting infantry, unquote. That is – that quote that I just read you verbatim is from a gentleman named Captain George P. Hunt. George Hunt, who was one of the – Hundreds, if not thousands of badasses on Peleliu and within the ranks of the 1st Marine Division was the captain, the commanding officer of K Company, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines. k three one's assignment is to take the point. Bill, show us the point on that map you got right there.
1: Yeah, here we go. And so this is K-3, right? And and this is um, Kilo Company, uh, obviously 1st Regiment. And so the, these promontories here and here were extremely heavily defended. We will talk about the Japanese attack later, but this is a concave. This is one of the concave and this is the other concave on, um, white beach one that we're going to be talking about through this, um, series coming up. So, uh, the point stuck itself 15 yards into the sea and contained a variety of Japanese weaponry. Two 40-millimeter anti-boat guns, six 25-millimeter heavy machine guns, mortars, anti-tank ditches ring the area, of of which it was populated with well over a hundred Japanese. So assigned to take what would later be called the point was K-31 under the cap, uh, the command of Captain George Hunt. As you just said, a veteran both Guadalcanal and Cape Gloucester, where he earned a silver star. The 26-year-old Hunt was like the majority of 1st Marine Division's company commanders. He was extremely experienced, highly motivated, and loved by his men. He knew every one of the 235 men by their first names and had trained with them and lived with the majority of the men for two years, probably had about a third that were new, but the rest of those he'd been with for about two years. Hunt later said that K Company was chosen by Puller because of the respect Puller had for Hunt's experienced company. Should K Company fail to respond to capture and hold the point, it would expose the entire left flank of the White Beach to Japanese counterattack. It is truly an awesome responsibility, Seth, that Captain Hunt
0: took seriously. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and again, you know, if you looked at that map that you just had up there, it is, it is definitely a precarious position to um, not only capture, but the key word here is to hold. And we'll get to that this episode and the following episode when we... Talk about the point again. Now, hitting the beach, Hunt and K Company ran, no surprise here, into furious fire amidst the stifling equatorial heat. Bill, Bill, here you're talking about the heat. Once ashore, Hunt sprinted a full 75 yards ahead of his company with several squads and trail, he said of his run, quote, My lips and tongue were as dry as sandpaper. Black vapor and the pungent odor of gunpowder, which was seeping from the earth, helped to clog my throat. Sweat was running off the end of my nose, unquote, taking hip Now, let me let me address the water situation that you brought up here just a second ago before we get back to the, the story here. The first Marine Division before they hit Peleliu and after they were at Cape Gloucester went to a little shithole called Pavuvu in the Russell Islands. And this was, it was a horrible place. And we've said this before, but the 1st Marine Division got the shaft. They really did. And the other divisions went to Hawaii, Maui, New Zealand. Mm-mm. After Melbourne, after Guadalcanal, the 1st Marine Division didn't see civilization again until they came home. Regardless of this, one of the tasks assigned to all the companies and all the regiments before Peleliu was to clean out oil drums to make them useful for potable water or drinking water. This was a job that was initially given to a lot of boot recruits. You know, a lot of guys that were new, the the old salts aren't going to scrub oil drums. They're going to make the new guys do the dirty work. A lot of the new guys didn't do it very well. So when the water is brought ashore, what little there is, is given to these guys in the equatorial heat of Peleliu, most of it is tainted with oil and fuel. And we'll get into that really in depth next week. Peleliu was a just a hot place. And I'm not even talking about combat. I'm just talking about climate wise. It was reported to have been upwards of 120 degrees, 105 in the shade. That's not heat index. That is temperature. That's just freaking hot. If you've ever been to New Orleans in the summer in September or August 1944, August 1944, August now, it doesn't get quite that hot, but it gets damn hot. And if you've ever experienced 85, 90, 95% humidity when it's 96 degrees outside, you know that it can sap your energy. So imagine that plus an additional 10, 15 degrees and someone shooting at you. So that's what Peleliu's temperature was like. Now, as he's making his way ashore, uh, Heavy fire is pinning K Company down. Uh, Hunt was initially confused as to the situation. Quote, he writes, I had to know what was going on. The uncertainty was agonizing, unquote. He sends runners out to gain information, but they failed to return. Reason why? Because they got shot. A wounded man stumbled into the makeshift command post, exclaiming, quote, there are K Company guys dead and wounded lying all around them, unquote. The situation was very grim. Something had to be done and quickly. Bill, Hunt reaches a decision here. What does he decide to do?
1: Well, he rolls, he rolls out of his hole, yelling for his radio operator to follow him, and he heads for the point. As he runs along, the shell blasted sand. He was shocked to see the full impact of the Japanese fire. I saw a ghastly mixture of bandages, blood, bloody and mutilated skin. Marines gritting their teeth, resigned to their wounds. Marines groaning and writhing in their agonies, men outstretched or twisted or grotesquely transfixed in the attitudes of death, men with their entrails exposed or whole chunks of body ripped out of them. That was his quote. Hunt discovered that the third platoon had landed 100 yards too far to the right and was pinned down about 50 yards from the point during its hard-fought assault. The platoon had knocked out one 40 millimeter gun, two heavy machine guns, and numerous light machine guns, but the gains had been at the cost of the platoon's leadership. The platoon commander was badly wounded and out of the fight. The platoon sergeant, jo- John Koval, quote, unhesitatingly assumed command, and despite a wound sustained from leading an assault against enemy pillboxes, and infantrymen entrenched in spider holes along the beach. He tenuously continued pressing the attack towards a Japanese anti-boat gun emplacement, which was inflicting heavy damage on our landing craft, unquote. His posthumous Navy Cross citation read, although wounded a second time and in a dying condition, he courageously directed the final assault, and was responsible in large measure for the destruction of the enemy gun. Now, that's a posthumous citation, of course. The second platoon was badly shot up. Its platoon commander dead on the beach. The platoon sergeant mortally wounded. The leaderless men fought their way 75 yards through rifle and machine gun fire to a 10-foot-deep tank trap where they were pinned down by extremely heavy fire from an unseen enemy dug into a coral ridge, south It's just incredible, and
0: yet this is only the beginning. Yeah, and the key word that you just said, or the key phrase you just said, Bill, is heavy fire from an unseen enemy dug into a coral ridge. You're going to hear that a lot through these next few episodes about Pilloway because it's the whole damn battle. The boulder-strewn, tree-blasted high ground of the point rose 30 to 40 feet high and was studded with heavily camouflaged Japanese machine gun positions, as we know. PFC Joe Dariano recalled, quote, our guys were dropping all around me. We were totally unorganized without officers or squad leaders and completely cut off from the rest of the company. Out of the 45 guys in my platoon, 19 were killed and 21 were wounded, unquote. And that's not for the whole event. That's now less than an hour Mm -hmm. after landing on the beach. Now, rather than attack the point directly, which would have been really bad, Hunt decides to try and flank the obstacle and attack it from the rear. Logical decision. Yet trying to find a weak spot in the Japanese defenses was a significant problem because there weren't any. With his left flank anchored on the beach, Hunt took his company and swung it like a door, trying to envelop the position. He sends his third platoon in to clear the point. While his second platoon hit the right half of the objective, his first platoon would follow his third platoon inland. Hunt assigned machine guns and mortars to accompany each platoon as it advanced. As after contacting first platoon's Lieutenant William Willis, who was another bad, bad man, Hunt ordered them to take and clear the point through the positions of the decimated third platoon. The steel-reinforced positions of the point were coated with concrete underneath a full five feet. Of coral rock piled on top of it, and were manned by at this point dozens of Japanese. Bill,
1: Mm. yeah, and Willis at the the head of the attack led his men as they wiped the Japanese out of the position in vicious hand-to-hand combat. Some of Willis's men had taken position behind a pillbox, while Willis crawled in front of it. Incredible, throwing a white Willie Peter right Willie Pete Mm. white phosphorus grenade. Into the position to blind the enemy, and then firing a rifle grenade into the pillbox, he watched as the Japanese poured out of the back of the pillbox on fire, only to be cut down by by his Marines waiting for them. Now Willis would be awarded the Navy Cross for this action. He later said it ignited something flammable inside that pillbox, and after a big explosion. Burst into flame, black smoke smoke poured out of the embrasure and the exit. I heard the Japanese screaming and their ammunition spitting and snapping as the heat exploded. Three Japanese with bullets popping in their belts and flame clinging to their legs. Raced from the exit, waving their arms and letting out yells of pain. The squad I had placed there finished them off, Seth.
0: Yeah, brutal, brutal, brutal combat, and this this combat on Peleliu is going to be primal in its form as we go through this entire event. Mm-hmm. With the point now clear, and Willis's men did indeed clear the Japanese out of the point, Hunt had his men establish defensive positions to ward off the inevitable night assaults of the Japanese. K Company was in bad shape; heavy casualties had taken their toll. As Hunt later estimated, that only thirty men of a company on top of the point were in any kind of fighting condition over 110 dead japanese lay around the point but over two-thirds of k company were casualties themselves the men on the point remember they can't dig in piled rocks around them for protection and hunkered down in the space of about an hour k31 third platoon and first platoon had lost two-thirds of their men what hunt later realized however and this is the worst part to his horror was that K Company was cut off from the rest of the division. Unable to gain communications, Hunt tried sending runners out to make contact, but to no avail. The gap in the first Marine lines was noticed, however, by Lieutenant Colonel Sable, which is 3-1-CO. He immediately plugged L Company into the line, but even then they were unable to contact Hunt. K Company, Bill, would be on their own at the point.
1: Yeah, and most of K Company's machine guns were either lost or destroyed in the savage fight. The enterprising Marines grabbed Japanese machine guns and utilized them in their positions. Fred Fox found an air-cooled hotchkiss surrounded by two j- j- dead Japanese. Two fellow Marines helped Fox carry it, and they placed the weapon in the hands of Corporal Robert Anderson, a machine gunner, gunner that had no machine gun. The captured weapon would be used well. Late in the afternoon, an LVT made its way to Hunt's company and replenished them with food, water, and ammunition. The water, tainted by oil again, was almost undrinkable, but Peleliu's sweltering 110-degree heat, the men had no little choice. After replenishing his ammo, Fox tried to dig a foxhole, but again, the coral made it impossible. Scraping out a shallow hole, he piled rocks in front of him, laid out on block clips for his M1, fixed his bayonet, took out his K-bar, and waited. I guess we all knew that something unpleasant was going to happen, he said. This was the Japanese
0: time, their time to fight, Seth. Mm-hmm. Fred Fox was a guy I knew. He, he lived just outside of San Antonio, Texas, and he was um, a hardcore marine. He was actually a demolitions guy. He had a he was initially assigned a flamethrower and the flamethrower that he had, I can't remember if it was either it it, it was either defective or he lost it in the landing or something happened, but he didn't have the damn flamethrower. And believe you me, K company could have used those flamethrowers had he been able to retrieve it or at the very least make it work. Forgive me. I don't remember exactly what happened to it, but he didn't have one. And he picked up an M1, but he was a bad, bad dude. And Fox, you're going to hear a little bit more about Fox in this episode. And you can hear more about him next week too. He was, he was a hell of a guy. Uh, As night fell, George Hunt, Captain Hunt, tore his lines one last time. He later said, quote, As blackness crept up and completely enveloped us, we were subdued to an eerie silence. Even the clicking sounds of a, of a rock, probably brushed off by the sweep of a man's elbow, seemed a harsh disturbance. There was no moon, Though there was no moon, the sky was just light enough to reveal the weird and grotesque silhouettes of knotted trees and stumps, unquote jagged pinnacled rocks melded with the gnarled tree remains providing cover for the japanese infiltrators that were most certainly going to come their odd shape odd shapes played tricks on the marines imaginations transforming them into japanese attackers in the darkness the marines however would not have very long to wait fred fox the guy we just talked about shared a foxhole, foxhole with a buddy sometime in quote sometime between 11 and 12 he said we heard movement out in front unquote pfc Sweet hansen also a friend of mine was close by he said quote you could hear movement going about and your ears got bigger and bigger because you're wondering is it a marine or is it a jap and you didn't know you didn't want to take a chance so i started throwing hand grenades out there in front and then i waited and he said, then the Nambu machine gun went off, so I threw a couple more grenades out there, and I heard it again. I took a little longer i it took a little longer to get that one unquote. Bill George Hunt is now working he now has a working radio. that LVT brings him a working radio, even though he's still cut off from the rest of the division. He immediately mm-hmm. requests illumination. Ships offshore fire star shells over the point, and Marines fired flares. The eerie light showed that the front was Crawling with Japanese, Bill. Literally crawling. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Hunt says a a machine gun fired a burst. Another one opened up with a vibrating roar. The browning on automatic rifles and other rifles, M1s, hand grenades were bursting in rapid succession. The explosions were muffled in the woods where there were gullies and ridges. Then much louder bursts approaching our lines closer and closer. I heard the cry, Coreman, Jap mortars, big stuff. They were pounding uh, in the middle of us. Shrapnel was clinking across rocks, unquote. So Seth, the f- fight at this point lasted through the night. In fits and starts. The Japanese would hit K Company, be repulsed, hit them again. Casualties already an issue were piling up, yet the Marines held the line. At first, the battlefield was quiet at the point. The ground was covered with dead Japanese. Hunt's Marines, however, already down to 30 men the night before, now numbered a paltry 18 men fit for combat. If his company was to survive, they would have to be reinforced as they were still cut off from the rest of First Marines. And so says it keeps going.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, the fight for the point is, is one of the legendary stories of Peleliu. And these direct quotes we're getting from Captain Hunt. I did not know George Hunt at all. However, after the war, he wrote a book, a fantastic little book. I don't know if it's available. I have no idea. I, I have a copy. It's called Coral Comes High, and it's written by George Hunt after the war about the fight for the point. So these quotes that, that Bill and I are talking about verbatim come from George Hunt. So uh, if you have never seen that book, look for it. It's not an easy one to find, at least I think. Uh, It's very easy to read. It's very small, but it's definitely worth your time. It's a very, very good book. And the fight for the point doesn't end here uh, as the sun rises on D plus one. It's going to continue because Hunt's Marines are tied in tight at the point, and they're receiving little to no support as the fight continues to spiral out of control. By the end of D-Day, the Americans held a tenuous toehold on Peleliu. Only two miles of beach, only two miles of beach were occupied by the Marines. The largest advance had been to the south, roughly one mile inland. Puller's first Marines had made little progress because of the heavy resistance. Over 1,100 Marines were casualties on D-Day alone, with over 200 of those killed in action. The toehold held by the Marines at the end of the at the end of D-Day was extremely tenuous. Hardest hit was by far the First Marines. Puller was either unaware or not accepting the fact that his casualties had been horrendous. This goes back to what we were talking about before, Bill. When asked if his regiment was, quote, making out all right, unquote, he replied in the affirmative and stated that his casualties numbered around 40 killed and wounded. The reality of the situation was that the First Marines had suffered nearly 500 casualties on D-Day alone one-sixth of their regimental strength. By nightfall on D-Day, Polar had already begun to pull men from the rear echelon to fill the ranks of the dead and wounded in the First Marines on D-Day. It's yeah. Terrible.
1: A- absolutely terrible. It is terrible. Yeah, and by the way, Hunt's book is available on Amazon. I just looked it up. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Um, in paperback. Uh, now, Rupertus aware of both his own casualties and Japanese resistance felt that the enemy had been defeated and they would quickly crumble because their perimeter had been broken. Completely unaware of the changing tactics, Rupertus was encouraged by the fact that the 5th Marines had defeated a counterattack at the edge of the airfield and were poised to take the airfield the following day. In reality, with the exception of George Hunt's shattered remnants of K-3-1 at the point, not a single inch of Peleliu's high ground had been taken, and none, none of the D-Day's objectives had been completed. Rupertus did decide to land his reinforcements, hallelujah, mainly to help 1-7 achieve its D-Day goal. Having committed 2-7 to the fight, Rupertus admittedly shot his bolt on D-Day, he would have no more reserve to land unless he called for the army. Neither Rapertus nor any other American ashore knew what really lay in store in the Umar Brogo looming before them, Seth. So, you know, rule number one for commanders be objective and be and, and understand your situation. Precisely, do not delude yourself. And this man is deluding himself. Big time,
0: big time. And, you know, again, true to form, you know, at the end of a, uh, of a D-Day, of any D-Day, W-Day, L-Day, whatever whatever letter you wanna use, at the end of the first day of any amphibious operation, and we've seen this countless times, Batio, Saipan, Guam, Tinian, all these, the the figures, casualty figures and reports that are coming in from your regimental battalion, company commander, whatever the case may be, is often confusing. It is. It is often confusing, and you don't always have – rarely, frankly, do you have a full, clear, concise picture of what's going on on D-Day. However, I don't ever recall any kind of regimental commander, i.e. Chesty Puller, saying, oh, yeah, my casualties are about 40 or so when your casualties are 500 – you know, I can I can understand saying, mm. well, you know, my casualties have been 400 and them being 500. OK, you know, fine. You can be off by that number. Or only I don't know. It'd be yeah. 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 Uh, Puller is not. Rupertus is not the only delusional commander here is what I'm trying to say. Mm. Justy Puller is delusional in terms of the combat strength and effectiveness of his first Marines. And this is only on D-Day, guys. This is only after the first day. This isn't even talking about what's going to happen. As Bill alluded to, the Umer Brogel, which all three Marine regiments are going to have their time at the whipping Post at Umer Brogel. But the first ones that are going to hit this honeycomb of hell is going to be Puller's first Marines. And it's just going to, spoiler alert, as we always say, bleed these guys white and this is going right. to be a discussion that we're going to have to continue next week because there's a lot more detail we want to get into, and it's 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 Peleliu is important in regards to history, maybe not to the overall aspect of the Pacific War, but it's important to history, mm-hmm. and we we want to dig into it. And the Umaruogle is by far the elephant in the room that we're going to talk about in detail.
1: Yeah, and if you enjoyed our coverage of Guadalcanal way back in Caesar One, you're gonna. Recognize our special guest. He's a blast from the past and, yep. um, and a great American, great <laughs> great Australian. Liz a little bit of a hint. So looking forward to having him join us for a discussion of what is mostly, but not all, completely, a marine battle. And
0: yeah,
1: next week's episode on Peleliu.
0: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Bill, do you have anything else you want to add to this to this episode before we wrap it up? No. Yeah. Peleliu episode one is 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 one of three. So stand by for the rest of Peleliu. We're going to get to a lot of a lot of the other heroic and more well-known stories and some of the ones that are are not too well-known as we go through this absolutely terrible, hellacious event, Operation Stalemate 2, Peleliu. So with that, we want to thank you for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast, wherever you receive your podcast, give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. If you want to see the video version of this, tune in to our YouTube channel if you haven't already. Thank you very much. Or if you have, thank you very much. If you have a question or comment, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. So once again, my name is Seth Perrin. Thank you very much for listening and or watching, Bill.
1: I'm Bill Toady. See you again next week.